Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown from caregiving.com. I'm the host of Your Caregiving Journey, a podcast that helps you as you help family members and friends. It is Wednesday, June 5th. It's just about 9.30 a.m. Central Time, and we're live out of Chicago. In just a few moments, one of our Family Caregiver of the Year Award winners will join us. Brenda Blaze Nesbitt was one of our winners. She cares for her daughter, Nikki, and she's going to talk to us about really how she has elevated her personal caregiving experience into something that's quite amazing. She does really amazing educational opportunities within her healthcare system in Canada, and she's actually broadening that so that she can help others who are in a caregiving situation. So she'll talk to us about how she started and how she was able to look at herself as more than a family caregiver, but really someone who knows and can share and educate the healthcare community. A couple quick updates for you. For years, we have called you a family caregiver. I'm not sure where that first that term first originated, but that's what we've always called you. When you care for a family member, a professional ref- will refer to you as a family caregiver. But is that what you want to be called? And as we think about what our professional name is, a professional name can give us an opportunity to actually become a profession, meaning that perhaps there's opportunities for us to get paid, there's an easier opportunity for us to receive ongoing training, and there's opportunities for us as a group, a group of professionals, to access benefits like health care and retirement. So we're going to start with naming our profession. And that contest is going on through June 8th. So I put out a call for you to name our profession. You can go to caregiving.com. You'll look for the headline, we're professionals, what's our professional name? Or you can go to caregiving.com slash name and enter your idea for our professional name. If we vote on your name and it's the top choice, You'll win 100 bucks and a lifetime entry into our caregiving co-op. All of our training and all of our movement going forward with our profession will happen out of our caregiving co-op. So we'll use the co-op for training, for support, for benefits, and I've crossed everything as I say that. My toes, my fingers, my arms, because wouldn't that be great if we could figure out a way as professions, as professionals, to have professional benefits? like insurance, retirement. So the first step, again, is our professional name. Through June 8th, you can submit an idea. We're going to start voting on the ideas for our name on June 9th. Whoever has the top choice wins 100 bucks and lifetime entry into our caregiving co-op. So go to caregiving.com slash name or just look for the headline on caregiving.com. Okay, those are the updates for you. So joining me this morning is Brenda Blaze Nesbitt. She cares for her daughter, Nikki. She is one of our five Family Caregiver of the Year Award winners this year. She is one of our presenters for this year's National Caregiving Conference, and she'll be honored at a special recognition during our live broadcast of our National Caregiving Conference on Saturday, November 9th. 
Good morning, Brenda. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Denise. Thank you for having me. Your daughter, Nikki, is 25. She actually just turned 26. She is 26. Okay. So 26 years ago, life changed for you at Nikki's birth. Very drastically, yes. And I'm wondering, when did you decide, I know so much about what it's like to care for a child who has very special medical needs? I have a voice that is important when, it's t- when we think about educating healthcare professionals. When did you think, I have that voice? I should be part of educating and really sharing my story with healthcare professionals. It didn't happen all at once, and it, it still continues to happen. I would say the first time I had a very strong advocating role for her would have been when she was about two, and I was unhappy with the care she was receiving from one of her specialists. And I spoke up, and I was... I was young. I was 25 at the time, and I wasn't used to speaking up to those in authoritative positions, you might say. Um, It it was very intimidating, but it was something that I felt very strong about, and it resulted in a conflict. But my mother bear instinct came out, and... I I felt very strongly about um, the medication she was on and and the levels that doctor wanted her medications to be at in her bloodstream, which was actually toxic levels. And there wasn't enough education for me at that point from him, so I had to educate myself. And through second opinions and educating myself, really around the time that the internet was coming up, um, I felt very strongly about what I was learning, and I, I struggled with standing up for myself and my daughter. But that was, I'd say, the very first pivotal moment for me. And um, as the years passed, just being aware that there is one side to care often, and it's typically the doctor's perspective or the nurse's perspective and not enough perspective is given to the family caring for for their child in that, you know, oh, it's no big deal, just do this at home. Well, actually, it is a big deal. That means there's not going to be any sleep for me, so how do we deal with that? It's very easy for doctors and therapists and nurses to say, oh, you need to do this at home and they're not in conjunction with everybody else and realizing what everybody else is telling these families to do at home. And it becomes definitely all-encompassing. And so I can't even remember what year it was now, but at our children's hospital here, there was a family advisory council, and I decided to join that. And... Excuse me. Part of that, we were creating subcommittees 
and sub-faculties. And we created a, fa a faculty education program wherein the families on the Family Advisory Council spoke with members of the faculty at the hospital, whether it be doctors or residents or nurses, and shared with them our perspective from the other side of the bed. It was very nerve-wracking for me because I never thought that I would do public speaking. <laughs> and here I was speaking to populations that intimidated me. Yeah. So it was, really, it was really stepping out of my comfort zone, and that opened up a world for me doing that. I'm curious, how did, how did how you see yourself or an assumption that you made about yourself change because you stepped into that advocacy and speaker role? I always felt myself as one that was easily intimidated, one that, I, you know, I kind of let people walk all over me. But when it came to standing up for my daughter, there was this other side of me that I became aware of and didn't exist before my daughter was born. And I refer to it sometimes as the mother bear instinct, uh, but it really allowed me to find out who I really am. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, I think it's kind of remarkable how, in a moment, how you see yourself changes because that moment of courage, in essence, shines a spotlight on something that you had but you didn't see, and that spotlight shows it to you. I think it's easy for us to fall back into our own, own ways as well. When Nikki turned 16, I had another uh, incident, and there were lots in between, when with every step, with every challenge, it took courage for me to deal with it. I'll give you an example of one I didn't deal with before she turned 16. She, I think she was around 12. And there was another specialist. She was the only specialist in that field at the Children's Hospital here. And she had a terrible bedside manner. And, for example, the first thing she would ask me is, why is there not a DNR on Nikki's file? And it stunned me because I don't, I don't think that she asked the parent of the child having an asthma attack in the next bed and emerge the same question. I think she saw the wheelchair and saw the disability before she saw the person. Mm. And I didn't know how to deal with that. So I swore I would never deal with her again. <laughs> But um, as fate would have it, I had to years later because she was the only specialist in that field. Now, fortunately and not fortunately, my daughter was in critical care, but I had a team of support. They knew exactly what I told them. I'm not comfortable, and I told them why. So they had someone in the room with me to support me and be there for me when she had to consult, and it actually was a much better experience. So we need to express what our needs are and not assume that the healthcare professionals will know what we need. And in that token as well, I learned something from that. And I learned that she could never change her ways because she had no idea the effect she had on me. As hard as it is to express your concerns 
or how somebody else makes you feel to them, it's important to do so in as tactful and professional a manner as you can because they can't change their ways if they don't know. So taking from that experience, when Nikki turned 16, she was in the hospital again, and I could see her declining, but the doctor and the team, they weren't listening to me. And she declined, and she got actually a really bad potassium burn on her leg from her IV, and it was it was awful. But I built up the courage, and again, it took me a lot of strength to build up that courage to talk to that team. And when they came in for grand rounds, I... I said to them, you know, I'm not trying to do your job. You're the medical doctors, but I've studied my daughter for 16 years. You have not been in school for that long, and this was directed to the medical students and the residents. I've studied my daughter for longer than you've been in med school. I need to be respected as a very valuable team member, the most valuable team member here. So we need to work together, not against each other. And that was a very, very positive experience for all of us. And I left that meeting feeling very empowered, very proud of myself, and most importantly, feeling like, you know what? I can deal with that doctor again. I know because I've let that doctor know how they made me feel, They can take that and do whatever they wish with it. But I felt good about how I handled it and that I could face that doctor again with confidence and without fear. Yeah. Because that is stressful, wondering, how am I going to avoid her? How am I going to make sure no one, you know, that everybody knows I don't want to work with her? That That is stressful. And stressful on top of that. an already stressful situation, yes, yeah, very much. Absolutely, so. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So you face that fear, which released some of that stress. I and a lot of the fear that, a lot of the, I create a lot of the fear. So, you know, we get into a situation where we, we worry about the outcome and we envision that outcome as something that's negative. I think that's just natural for us to do often. And we need to start thinking about the outcome being positive, still facing, you know, it might not be as positive as we hope it to be, but envision the positive. And the more you think the positive, the more the positive can happen. The more you think the negative, the more the negative can happen. I also wonder if it's a little bit of, and this is for me, so I'm speaking for me, are people-pleasing instincts, which mean that we don't rock the boat, we keep calm waters, <laughs> we just go with whatever's happening because we don't want to ruffle any feathers. And I love your, your reminder that we can tell people what we need. It doesn't have to be presented as a critical criticism or judgment it's just stating here's what I need in this situation I need support because I'm I'm a little intimidated by this physician because of what happened the last time we interacted boom I mean that's that's an easy ask but yet it does bring up the oh no should I 
can I? And that just keeps us silent. It does. And I've, you know, I've, I've done that many, many times in my life as well. Um, there are times that I haven't been silent as well, and it's been quite the opposite. But we need to take responsibility. We can't expect that other people know what we need. So we need to take responsibility for voicing what we need. And it's a scary thing to do because sometimes it seems you, you, you might perceive that someone else will think that you're being weak. But in actual fact, by expressing what you need, is a strength, and, and it allows other people to see that and to see a different perspective and to be in a position to help you if they can. I think yeah, we often absolutely. expect that doctors and nurses know everything, and they don't. And they certainly don't about my daughter or about what I need, and they're not going to. And often what I tell doctors when it comes to my daughter is, you know what, you need to throw out your medical books. Because she's made her own. Mm. <clears throat> and yeah. I, there are certainly some situations where they, you, you, I've lost, I've lost it, I've lost it on physicians, and it's you've tried every angle as you, that you can. And my philosophy is, you get what you give. So if you're going to be really um, antagonistic or frustrated and angry with a doctor, you're going to probably get that back. Now, I'm not saying you can't be that way because there are certainly some situations where that was the only way I could get through to doctors or nurses. There was a nurse who was giving my daughter 12 times her dose of fentanyl. I lost it. I lost it because I was trying to stop her. I was questioning her, the dosage. And she was giving her milligrams instead of micrograms. And I had somebody there with me who has worked with my daughter at home for years. And she was herself a nurse at that hospital as well. And she happened to be in the room. And she was witness to me questioning from the moment she hooked that syringe up to the moment the the nurse stopped, she didn't stop even though I was questioning her. And at that point, yeah, I lost it because my daughter's safety was on the line here. And I went up the chain as far as I could. And there's other times when I have to call people in tears to get help. So my message is you have you have to take responsibility for yourself and the person you're caring for in that you need to communicate what your needs are, what your fears are, what your worries are. They can't help you if they, if they don't know. And you're going to get what you give. So be, wary, be, be very aware of how you're approaching people. And that's in everyday life. It just doesn't, doesn't just apply to caregiving. It applies to everyday life. And um, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, oh, it's okay. I have a, actually a question for you. Okay. You 
you talked about the physician asking you a question about Nikki's DNR. And in that moment, you are completely focused on Nikki's quality of life and Nikki's recovery. Something like a DNR is just not even on your radar. I'm curious if you learned anything about how to respond to questions that seem not applicable to the moment, not applicable to your goals. How, how do you handle questions going forward now because of that experience? That's a really good question because every situation is different. Now, that particular question was before asking that question became mandatory. Now that it's mandatory to ask any patient who enters the hospital, regardless of their state of well-being, um, what their wishes are in case something happens. I always, I can sense when a resident or a doctor is going to ask me that, and I take the conversation outside of the room. Oh, I don't okay. need, I don't need Nikki to be privy to that. Um, but I also had a, a situation recently where Nikki was in in respiratory distress, and we'd been trying to reach a a resident all day long about a medication that, because she didn't get it, led to a respiratory distress. And when the resident finally came to the room, he was very, the first thing he said is, I've been busy with other sick patients. (laughs) So that kind of set me off right away, but I kept my composure and I, I asked him to give her this medication and he he insisted on wanting to know what times of the day we tried to reach him. And I just kept asking the same question. And I had to ask him four times. I said, that's not the issue right now. The issue is her respiratory distress. Can you give her this medication or I can just reach into the cupboard and grab her home supply. And it was, it was a stressful situation, but I kept my composure and one of my nurses from home was also there with me. She was doing some training. And when he left, I felt shaken up inside, but um, I didn't let him see that. I kept my composure. And my nurse from home came to me and she said, oh my, Brenda, you handled that so well. But I just had to keep repeating the question. And four times Mm -hmm. I repeated the question. So, you know, it takes years to kind of, you can't just automatically say, this is what I need to do because every situation is different. But it has taken me years to build that confidence to know that I know what I'm talking about and I'm basically an honorary nurse and doctor myself because I've become, I've studied her now for 26 years. If if it's an issue that's not dealing with anything that she has, I'm not as well-versed in it, of course, but anything she has, I'm very well-versed in it. So I have built that confidence, and that helps a lot. But I think another thing to practice that's really helpful is to focus on your breathing, take a deep breath, count to 10. 
count to 10 because then you don't have a knee-jerk reaction. You can gather your thoughts, think about what you're going to say, and it doesn't always happen that way because often we are going to have knee-jerk reactions when something hits us and affects us, you know, like that question, why does she not have a DNR? That was, that was very hurtful to me at that time. She was very young. I want to say she was eight. Um, so that was, you know, when you're hurt and you're scared because you don't know what's going on, you can often have knee-jerk reactions. But if you can get into the practice of counting to ten, taking a deep breath, gathering your thoughts, it often helps. I also, with Mickey, the first two years of her life were extremely exhausting, and it was that whole grieving phase for me. And I got into a mode where, woe is me, why me, until the day somebody said to me, I feel sorry for you. That hit me like a ton of bricks because I realized at that point, I don't, I don't want to be viewed that way. I want people to look at me and say, wow, she's like inspiring. So I started to change the way I perceived my own life. And also around the same time, my daughter went from screaming constantly to showing her true little happy personality. This girl who screamed as a baby for two years plus never cries. Never cries now. And she is the happiest being on the face of this planet. Her laughter fills my house. It's infectious. Her smile is contagious. She's like a magnet. Someone sees her smile or hears her laughter and they've got to have more. And that's exactly what it was like for me when I first experienced it. I experienced that and I just started being very aware of what was happening around her that made her be that happy. And I discovered that the happier I was, the happier she was and vice versa. But there were other key things that made her very happy. So I did everything I could to fill her life full of those things to bring the happiness out. And then the other thing that was very pivotal for me was taking her to the dentist when she was two. She grinded her, her, she grinded her teeth terribly. I was concerned about her wearing off the enamel. I took her to the dentist. I had no idea how this dentist was going to examine her. She was so little. She was, the, the dentist chair would, was massive, right? So he had us sit knee to knee, and he laid her across our laps. And I thought that was just so personal and touching. He looked at her mouth, he examined her, and he looked up at me, and he said, she's perfect. Keep up the good work. And even now my, my eyes well up with tears because I was so shocked. I didn't think I heard him right. So I said, pardon me, and he said, she's perfect. And it hit me at that moment that up until that point, 
everything in her life and in my life focused on the negative, what she couldn't do and what she would never be able to do. And for the first time in almost two and a half years, I heard something positive about her. And that completely changed my perspective of her life and my life. And now it's all about what she can do instead of what she can't do. We just have about a minute left, and I love that story because the parallel to that is when you focus on what Nikki can do, it also allows you to focus on what you can do. And you can be happy. You can take opportunities to really be an amazing advocate and educator. And in addition... You are also a coach for family caregivers. You, you've launched your own business. You're a certified caregiving consultant. You're a certi- certified caregiving educator and a certified caregiving facilitator. And okay. you opened up your own business. You coach family caregivers, yeah, who live in Canada, but you can also provide emotional support to family caregivers who live in the United States. So anyone that Anywhere. lives in the United States, yeah. It, it, as long as you're you're okay with the fact that the healthcare system is a little different, but the caregiving experience is very similar, Brenda's your gal. So, Brenda, tell us what your website address is. It's long. It's www.coachingforcaregiverscanada.com. And a reminder, Brenda will be at our fourth annual National Caregiving Conference in Chicago. She's got a couple presentations. She'll be part of our award reception on Saturday during our live broadcast. So you can connect with her in Chicago, November 7th through 10th. Brenda, I'm so looking forward to meeting you in person. Me too. I really look forward to the conference and to meeting you. And I appreciate the opportunities you've given me as well, Denise. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was, for me, a great way to start the day because it's all about possibilities, and you really showed us all that's possible. Thanks so much, Brenda. Thank you, Denise. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing, because we do truly love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.